0: Good Good morning. Aren't you glad we didn't start the service at 9 o'clock or 9.30? We all got in here nice and dry, except for a few that came later. I'll tell you what, if this gets really hairy, we'll just go in the stairwell and I'll preach at the top, okay? Down to all of you like this. No, you can open your Bible to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. If you're visiting, we'd love to have a welcome card as a record of your attendance. And I want to remind you, if you have kids, we have an awesome space downstairs for them to hang out if they would choose to do so. I want to start out with a question this morning: How many of you rode the bus as a student in school? Just curious. Wow, most of us. Look at this. Okay. Um, anybody just love the bus riding season of your of your life? Couple of us. Okay. All right. So anybody here hate the bus riding season of your life? That's the majority. Wow. Um, I was a bit of a terror, if I might be honest, um, to my driver as a kid. Uh, I remember smashing, uh, students close your ears, a stink bomb on the floor of the bus as a kid. Um, I was dumb enough uh, to think that... uh, I wouldn't be found out. I mean, if you think what a foolish decision that is, right? There's a limited amount of students on the bus. Eventually, they're going to discover, of course, who um, it was. Today, I'm a substitute driver, and in part, I think it's to give something back to the system that I abused, okay? So I remember uh, one day in my high school, as all the buses pulled up to, to the school, this, this is the south Um, We had down there something very popular called a spirit rock. Did spirit rocks ever hit the Midwest? This is a huge rock that they'd bring in and sit in front of the school, kind of close to the sign, maybe on the opposite side of the road. And students could spray paint at any time they wanted, in the middle of the night. They'd come in, "Happy birthday, Jim!" You know, or whatever they wanted to do, or "Go Tigers!" You know, or What have you? it was a spirit rock. Well, every school had a big spirit rock. Well, when you think about it, what a dumb idea is that, right? I mean, you're giving students the privilege to write anything and everything they'd want in the middle of the night on a big rock that you wouldn't have time, presumably, to paint over if it was something, you know, illicit or uh, bad language or what have you. Well, I, I remember a very dark day in school Um, when there was something uh, very racist one morning painted on the rock. Um, It was a time when uh, some things were were happening, I think, in L.A., and they kind of uh, spread out in fingers in different cities and in areas across the country. And I just remember seeing this and just not knowing what to expect at school that day. And at school that day, there were high tensions and and everybody was emotionally um, just on edge. And I remember uh, in the commons area of the school seeing a fist fight break out between some African-American students and some white students, and teachers got involved, and punches were thrown, and it was just a terrible, terrible, dark um, memory in my mind, and people got hurt. And while central Wisconsin, uh, I I think, is a bit isolated uh, from this kind of thing, um, I'd say maybe the Midwest in general or the North in in general, um, I I do think this kind of thing... um, let's not say racism, but violence in particular is, is common. It just, it happens in academic settings. It's, it's unfortunate. And emotions just kind of become unraveled and things are said and someone else takes offense and boom, a conflict breaks out. Um, And while they're typically a little more civilized, I think we'd say the same is true of our homes. The same is true of our workplaces. The same is true of our family reunions. The same is true of all kinds of interactions with people that we know and love as believers. And James speaks to this uh, in today's text. James knows that there are sinners in the world He knows uh, that there are principalities and powers that are active, and he really gives us two options as believers, okay, two options. And I'll go ahead and share them with you at this point. The first is a worldly conflict, and the second is a godly conflict. Those are our two options as it pertains to conflict. Will our response be worldly? Will our activity be worldly? Or will our response and activity be godly? Um, note what's not an option. What's not an option is no conflict. We liken our idealized minds to think that there is a world in which we can have no conflict. Have you experienced a world in which we can have no conflict? I've yet to experience that. There is conflict in life. There has always been conflict in life. There will always be conflict in life. So the question becomes um, not is there or isn't there, not can I avoid it or, or can't I? The question becomes what do we do with it? What do we do with conflict? And do we respond in a worldly way or do we respond in a godly way? And James is a helpful source because James draws from very personal Experiences. I mean, if you think about it, being the little brother of Jesus, he would have seen those who confronted Jesus. He would have he would have seen those who mistreated Jesus, those who arrested Jesus, perhaps, and certainly those who crucified Jesus. Uh, Yes or no? James saw his share of conflict. Yes, he did, and so he is, uh, in my opinion, um, a valid. Person to speak to this subject matter. Uh, Not only did James see, um, as in large part a third party, um, conflict, James saw his brother respond to conflict in a very uh, perfect, gracious, godly, helpful, healthy way. He saw Jesus respond. Um, and so now James is pastoring this mothership of churches in uh, Jerusalem, uh, has lots of influence. This is the church that makes doctrinal decisions. This is the church that's the final straw when it comes to revolving, uh, resolving conflict between parishioners at various churches or bigger kind of uh Uh, issues. Things are hammered out here. Things are taken care of here. So James is in a leadership position and he needs to, as a part of this particular leadership position, resolve a ton of conflict. That's his role, keeping unity in the church. And so, like it or not, it's his job not to mention he's trying to shepherd a group of Christ followers in a primarily what culture? Well, it's a Jewish culture. So these are people that don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. So there's a lot, a lot of contention. What you may not know, we did mention this in our introduction to the book, is that James would eventually die due to a conflict. The conflict would lead to a fight. The fight would lead to a riot. Uh, They wanted James to stop preaching and teaching about his older brother, Jesus, and he chose not to. And so like they seized Jesus, they seized James, Uh, they arrested him, they took him to the top of the temple, and they threw him off of the temple, and he hit the ground and did not die, and so they surrounded him with a mob and beat James to death. And that is how James... Died. And so I want you to see that James endured and, and ultimately was unable to endure what he's bringing to our attention today, which is conflict. Because I want you to see him as an authority on the subject. He experienced it firsthand. So I hope that makes him a credible witness. And what he tells us, again, is that we have two. Options: we can handle it like the world does, or we can handle it like God does. James four verse one. This is kind of his thesis statement, his opening. What qua- what, what causes and quarrels? Excuse me. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? This is his big idea. This is his question. The remainder of what he's going to say in these uh, 10 or so verses that we're going to read to you today is really the answering of this primary question, this main idea. What causes quarrels and fights uh, among you? And before we get into that, how many of you have had this very same question? How do we get into this argument? <laughs> What's caused this? Squabble? Um, why is that couple fighting constantly? Um, why are those people enemies? Why do they hate each other? Why do those business partners split up? Why do they do that? Why? Um, what, what causes this and that? And, and when you ask one side, do you or don't, you get the same answer as when you ask the other side. You always get a different answer, depending on which side you ask what's happening. And today, James is saying, I've got a unique perspective for you to consider that's unlike the perspective of either side. So listen up. And then he says this. He says, is it not this? So he asks a question. And then he says, is the answer not this? In other words, tune in to what I'm about to say. He's inviting us to listen. He says, your passions are at war within you. That is to say that before the problem ever exists out here, it exists in here, inside Conflict results from a heart issue in those that are involved in the conflict, if it's a worldly conflict. James 1, 2 through 4. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. James is saying that conflict unresolved escalates toward injury and and potentially even death. And we know that it does. It doesn't take but one flip through the news to know that this is the way conflict often ends. And he says, um, you, you covet, is what he says, basically. You have, you want something you don't have. What is that? That's coveting. He says, you covet, you can't obtain what you're longing for. And so you fight and quarrel. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. Then he continues, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly and you spend it on your own passions, you adulterous people. What a charge. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend to the world makes himself an enemy to God. So when James is talking about worldly conflict and he actually uses that word or a form of it, Um, he gives a simple definition of what it means to be worldly therein. He says, worldly means basically that things are put put, put put together in a way that Satan likes, in a way that Satan prefers, okay? That is to say that when things, anything, is organized in a way that Satan would approve of it, that he's glad, Jesus grieves. Jesus hates that. Um, when Satan says, yes, that's exactly the way I want it, there's never a time where Jesus says, well, that's also the way I want it. That never happens. So Jesus says, uh, that's not the way things ought to be when Satan says, that is the way things ought to be. So that's when something is worldly. When dirt roads, and a number of us live on dirt roads, aren't, maintained, what happens? Eventually, water and vehicle traffic causes ruts. And what happens if you don't have good tires? You get stuck in a, literally, not proverbially, a rut. You can get stuck in a rut when the roads aren't maintained. And uh, James is, is telling us worldliness is where everybody is traveling, um, and there are well-worn ruts in the road, and they're so easy to fall into, and it's very difficult to get out of them. And James gives us three traits in, in particular of worldly conflict. First, he says, uh, we've read the verses that they begin with our passions. They begin with our passions. Um, Emotions become untethered, okay? They rip us apart. People are hurt. People are angry. People are defensive. People are upset. People are frustrated. People are afraid. True or false? This is how conflict begins, right? And and conflict uh, is, is inaugurated by these emotions that are off kilter. We've all been there. James is exactly right. It's how conflict begins. Um, I'll, I'll just tell you that, that um, I, I, hope, I hope this is the case, that this is all escalated by young children. <laughs> I hope that's the case. Because I find that at this season in my life, my fuse is shorter than it ever has been. And I want to bring give you a little insight into the sinner that is your pastor. Um, I'm reading this book right now. I, I feel like uh, Robert De Niro in Anger Management, okay? I'm reading this book right now called Emotional Intelligence 2.0. May I recommend this book to you? I rarely recommend books to people, in large part because I rarely read books. But I'm reading one now, and this is very good for me. This is very good for me. It's been awesome for me. And it has in the back, if you order the hard copy, and I'm assuming if you order a digital copy, this is the way it works too, um, a code that you have that takes you online and you take a test to find out how emotionally batty you are. And after reading the book and after putting its tips into practice, you take another test to see how your EQ, or your emotional intelligence, has improved. So what is EQ? Let me just go off the record and talk to you about it for a minute, because I'm learning a lot and I want to share it with you generally, hoping you'll pick up this book, okay? Um, What EQ is, research has discovered, it's emotional intelligence. It's different than IQ. We, I learned, cannot change our IQ. Our IQ is not related to nurture. Our IQ is related to nature. It is what it is. We're either brilliant or we're not, or somewhere in between, okay? EQ, we can change. And that's emotional intelligence. And it has, according to these authors, four quadrants, Uh, The first is self-awareness. Self-awareness. Are you aware of the fact that you're becoming emotionally unstable when you're becoming emotionally unstable? I found this out about myself. I'm completely aloof to the fact that I'm becoming emotionally unstable. I have no clue until I've already blown up. I have an inability to perceive myself As a third party, I'm getting better at it. The book's teaching me how, but I don't have any self-awareness. The second quadrant is self-management. Once you're aware, what are you able to do to repress, to contain your overreactions, your defensiveness, your anger? Are you able to manage that? Third, social awareness. What do you see happening in other people? Are you aware of other people's emotions? How many of you would say um, that's an important part of leadership? Being aware of not what other people are saying that too, but what other people are thinking and feeling. That's important. And in the fourth quadrant, social awareness is the third. The fourth is uh, social management. Are you able to manipulate in healthy ways how other people are feeling once you've kind of diagnosed how they're feeling? Okay. And this is what they found. This is what they found. I have historically been a person to laugh at this kind of stuff. It's a fad. It's Latest research, blah, 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 blah. Things will never change. They never, they have never changed. They never will change. The Bible says so. There's nothing new under the sun. Research, blah, 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 blah. God is is cutting me at the knees in my pride right now in lots of areas that are showing how the Bible and science are so incredibly complementary. And here's what they've discovered about EQ. The top quartile of of people that we would have said have succeeded in the corporate world. You know what they don't have in common? IQ. A very small percentage of them have a high IQ. You know what they do have in common? EQ. They are able to know when they are becoming unraveled. And they're able to fix it. And they're keenly aware of when others are becoming unraveled and they're able to fix it. And while it was not known that this was all happening for decades, those are the people that have gotten promotions, not the people who are brilliant. And so having a high EQ results in higher salaries, higher promotions, better, uh, what most people would say, better quality of life. And so all of this relates to, in James' words, whether we respond in a worldly way or a godly way, okay? And so what I want you to see is that friendship with the world and responding the way the world responds is enmity with God. It's not the character of the Father. God doesn't respond in those ways. Therefore, James says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy uh, of God. Um, And so, the first, he says, uh, conflict, worldly conflict, he characterizes it as having begun with our passions. Okay, This stuff starts internally. All of a sudden, everything becomes external, but it starts from within. And he says, perhaps to our surprise, it involves simply coveting the essence of coveting is we want what they have i want what he has i want what she has they have power we want that they have influence we want that they have children we don't we want that They have a great job. I want a great job. They're smart. I want to be smart. She's healthy. I want to be healthy. And we want to take from them so that we have it and they don't, or at least just so that they don't have it. It's covening. James says, hey, did you notice that you forgot to ask God for that? If you have not, you ask not. Did you notice the things that you long for, or you failed to ask your father for? That's important. If you want what they have, you shouldn't covet them. You should ask him. And sometimes people have asked God and God has said no or, or God has said not now, which he, which he does. He does often. And so what looks like a conflict with other people is at its root a conflict with who? With God. Because we're angry he didn't provide. And so we look to fix that by focusing on some, someone else. We're not happy with, with what God's given us, so we're going to envy somebody else. So James says conflict begins with that it begins with emotion and then one of its traits second he says it explodes into fighting into quarreling and one of the most popular ways uh, of contributing to a fight even if it stays internal is when we question the motives of other people have you noticed that about human nature we take it past what somebody's doing and we judge them based on what we think, why we think they're doing it. We expect other people to judge us by our actions, but we judge them by what we perceive their motives to be. We can see visibly what people do, that's pretty clear, but motives are only seen by who? By God. Um, how many of us have had someone approach us and say, "I know why you said that." Well, no, you don't. You don't know why I said that. You know what I said, right? This is truth. But but this was going on in your heart. No, it wasn't. <laughs> That's not what was going on in my heart. So many of the fights. I should. I use that word accurately, that Shan and I have had. No. Um, so many of the, of the arguments we've had is because one of us misunderstood the other's motives. I expected Shan to judge me by my actions, but I was judging her by the why. This is why you said that. No, that's not at all what I meant. I'm so sorry. I didn't realize that. Godly conflict is not a rut in the road. It's an entirely different path. We'll get there in just a moment. What are you saying, uh, Pastor, with, with the motive stuff? What I'm saying is that speculation can lead to conflict unnecessarily. A third trait that the worldly conflict includes is gossip, and slander. This is where we talk about someone rather than what? To someone. We talk about somebody rather than talking to that individual. What are we looking for when we do that? Well, of course, we're looking to get people onto our side. That's why we do that. We're not trying To reconcile, we're trying to have victory. And in the digital age, this gets really complicated. Because when we live on a farm, miles away from our neighbors, you have to work pretty darn hard to get into a conflict. Do you or don't you? Yes. If you live on Facebook, do you have to work hard to get into a conflict? No, particularly if you talk about your political ideas. It's easy to get into a conflict in a social media age. And and so nobody wins with the way that the world does it. Have you ever had somebody Jump down your throat about a political position that you held on Facebook and responded in this way. You know, now that I think about it, you are so right. (laughs) It just doesn't work. It's not convincing the way the world does it. It doesn't have a good outcome. In tribal societies, there's this thing called uh, spearing. And it's, it's very primitive, it's very dark, but it's when my people don't like your people, we're going to harm your people. And so an individual in one tribe will sneak into the camp of another tribe and will physically, literally spear a member of that camp. And in retribution, that tribe, a member of it, will sneak into the camp of the former tribe And spear an individual. Um, It's a known sociological, uh, pathological uh, way that people live. And generations can go back and forth in a conflict for generations. If you can even imagine this. Based on this person initially did something to us. Hundreds of years can pass of spearing. Okay? Um, what Jesus said and what James is advocating for is I'll die for both of you. Don't stick the spear in each other, stick the spear in me. I'll take it. You're to love one another. You're to live peaceably. Before I get into godly conflict, let me address um, again this mythological third option of of no conflict. Some of you, in an effort to have conflict, uh, to have no conflict, you retreat. You want to be invisible. You avoid people. You think if I don't have relationships, I won't have conflict. It's not true. It's a myth. This is where people um, grow up in a home and they see so much conflict between mom and dad that they never want to get married. They never want to have uh, children. uh, They don't want to have a family. This is where someone is betrayed by a friendship. And so they uh, won't let anybody else get close enough to them because they don't want to be hurt again. Uh, This is where someone goes to a church, and they get hurt at that church, and so they leave that church and go to another church. The idea is if I don't have relationships, I won't have conflict, true or untrue. It's false. Conflict is wherever we are. It's wherever we are. I want you to understand the goal in life as it pertains to conflict ought not to be to avoid conflict. It ought to be to have godly conflict. Godly conflict. Um, There's another great book um, that I'll only mention by name and then I'll give you a tiny synopsis called Crucial Conversations. So good. Um, But the idea is it's a myth if we think that our only two options are confronting that person and it blowing up or not confronting that person and living in hell for the rest of our lives. That's a myth. There's an option in the middle where we can have godly conflict, where we can have gentle conversations that address issues in kindness towards one another with truth and grace. This is where James is going, verses 5 through 10. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. James first reminds us that God's spirit lives inside of us. Therefore, he's involved, the spirit is, in godly conflict. In verse 5, James says, We ought not just be governed by our emotions. We ought to be governed by the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit. If you ever looked at the life of Jesus and said, as, as I've thought, How did Christ do it? How did he turn the other cheek? How did he tell Peter to put down his sword? I mean, how did he maintain that level of composure? He had conflict. Jesus did. He had a ton of it. Some of it was public, some private, some with a person, some of it with a mob. Um, How did he not have worldly conflict? It was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't cheat I had a roommate in in college that wrote uh, a a final paper on um, it was easy for God not to sin because he was God. Nothing could be farther from the truth. His professor scolded him for it. Jesus was fully human. He added on to his divinity, humanity. He was tempted in every way, the scriptures say, as we are, except he did not sin. And it was hard because he was fully human. We too ought to be governed by the spirit of God and not by our emotions. Amen? Amen. When we start flaming out of control, we need a spirit to be in charge of us. Another other things, James uh, says that godly conflict is gracious. James puts it this way. He gives more grace. This is in stark contrast to worldly conflict. There is no grace present in worldly conflict. There's no forgiveness. There's no, there's no gift of something undeserved. But in godly conflict, God dispenses grace not to one party, but to how many? To both, to two parties. Parties And both parties take the grace that God has afforded them and they, in turn, give it to one another. Levi said to me uh, a few months back, and while I can't remember his exact words, he said something to the tune of, Dad, how can you forgive me for this? He's just weeping. How can you forgive me for this? And I started crying and I said, I just hugged him and I just became overwhelmed by the presence of God And I started recalling every mistake I've made in obstinance and rebellion of of my father in heaven. And I said, Levi, I'm able to forgive you because God has forgiven me. He's forgiven me. And I hope that is the spirit, that is God's spirit in which we deal with conflict. I'm able to dispense grace to you because the Father has so lavishly dispensed it to me. In worldly conflict, we take our sins to the foot of the cross of Christ and we take other people's sins to our heart. And we internalize them. And we, we become defensive. What, what grace is, is, is putting other people's sins at the same place we put our own sins. At the foot of the cross of Christ. The third thing James says, when he's talking about godly, and there are others in here that I haven't gotten into, but I chose three. He, he chooses humility. He says, Christians ought to choose Humility. Not pride and arrogance. Proverbs 3.34, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Worldly conflict, I think you would agree, is marked by pride. It's characterized by pride. Godly conflict is marked by humility. Pride says, I am more important. I am better. I am right. I will win. It's not about the we, it's about the me. James says, God opposes people like this. How many of you would agree with me and say, I do not want to be opposed by God. I want to have him on my team. I don't want the creator of the world against me. I want him with me and and for me. It's a big deal to be opposed by God, but God gives grace to the humble. One author said, no one can ever say I'm humble. It's true, isn't it? I mean, just imagine if I came up here today, my name's Pastor Zach, and I've been pastoring the mill for almost 10 years, and by now, man, I'm telling you, I have grown quite humble. I mean, you wouldn't listen to anything else I said. We don't talk about our humility. What we say is, the author continues, I am a proud person pursuing humility by the grace of God. It is a constant pursuit. So let's bring this full circle this morning by returning to James' original question. What causes quarrels and fights among you. The answer to his rhetorical question is worldliness. It's doing it like the world does it. God's got an entirely different plan for our arguing. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would Continue to speak to us, continue to change us, continue to open up our hearts and minds to an understanding of ourselves. Lord, help us to change. Help us not to talk about changing. Help us to change. Help us to be aware of when we're moving from godly to worldly. God, help us to live in the beauty, in that, in that narrow spot between not having any conflict and living in misery and having a major conflict and blowing things up. Help us to find that space where we can, where we can honestly, gently, graciously confront the situations that need to be confronted. Help us to live in the middle, Lord. Boldly, courageously, passionately, tenderly. In Jesus' name, amen.